of the things that's unique about being an open core company is like you're you're always not not terrified, but you're always cognizant of like, hey, someone could fork us. And that could be a real problem. <laughs> you know, it's a problem for an open source project. It's even more so a potential problem for an open core company that's building revenue around that. And so the strategy of GitLab was like, hey, you're welcome to fork us. We're really good open source stewards. You're welcome to do that. However, good luck keeping up with us. Like, you know, good luck. You can fork us. You can create some feature you want, but you're never going to get that integrated back into the main because we're just marching so far ahead. This is Equivalent to Magic, a show about the tech wizards behind the most influential companies and platforms. I'm Steve Harrod. And I'm Quentin Clark. Together, we're going deep with the technical executives, product developers, and engineers about how they dream, design, and build their way to scale. In this episode, Eric Johnson, the EVP of engineering at GitLab. Eric oversees a distributed team of engineers at GitLab, which is one of the world's largest all-remote companies. And no, it's not COVID remote. The company's natively remote, with over 1,200 people across 67 countries. GitLab is an open-source DevOps platform that makes software development faster and easier. It has over 100,000 customers serving millions of users. We'll hear from Eric about the technical culture inside the company that makes the platform so valuable to developers at both enterprises and startups, as well as how it's operated remotely for nearly a decade. GitLab's culture is based on radical transparency. Everything is meticulously documented, shared, and publicly edited. That's a crucial piece of bringing everyone together in a remote environment. It can also be a challenge for technical executives and managers. When Eric joined the company in 2017, he thought he knew what transparency meant. I intentionally or accidentally joined, I think, the most transparent company in, in the world. And I was told by my CEO, said through the interview process, like, this is one of our core values and it'll, it'll challenge you for sure. And I'm like, eh, whatever. You know, I've only ever worked for startups. This will be my fifth startup. And um, startups are generally very transparent. So I, I wasn't terribly worried about it. But this wasn't your average startup level transparency. This was a level of openness that Eric had never experienced. About three months in, I got some feedback from a couple of their executives. I, I wasn't being a, a GitLab standard transparency. And it was things like, you know, needed to, you know, new leader joins myself. We need to do some reorg with management and whatnot. And I was kind of holding that information back, keeping it to kind of a, a small group or what you could nefariously think of as the, you know, the smoke-filled room where people are making decisions and other people aren't included or whatnot. Like many people do good intent. I was trying to make sure that we had uh, fit and we had the communication plan set so that when we rolled it out, it was as painless as possible for the organization. But that's not GitLab standard transparency. GitLab standards meant documenting every process and every single decision so that everyone on the team can easily access it. Fast forward a few years and Eric says he's now the guy known for being transparent. Part of transparency that I now understand, I think, very well after almost four years at GitLab is that part of transparency is immediacy. And so you have to push yourself to share information rapidly. And so now I think I'm one of those people that not only is known for being very transparent with their people, but also now I'm, I'm typically the onboarding buddy for new executives that join. And I think I've been effective at teaching new executives of like, hey, heads up, this challenged me. It'll probably challenge you. This is how I did it. But this approach is not without its risks. Eric said that sharing everything can be like doing his job next to an electric fence. Occasionally, you get too close. But the guy who built the system, CEO Sid Cybrandi, understands and accepts those risks. 
to create a transparent organization, he's very tolerant of mistakes. So he doesn't like it when we touch the electric fence, like we get zapped, like we release information that in retrospect should have remained within the company or something like that. But he tolerates it very well and he knows, hey, it's still a reminder, we're still the most transparent organization in the world because we know right where that fence is, we're right up against the boundary and every once in a while we get we get zapped. But we're not like, you know, three hills over, 10 miles away from the fence like I think most people get. So why create this kind of culture in the first place? As Eric explains, it helps remote teams make decisions very quickly and with confidence. It's also a core piece of the platform itself, setting it apart from other DevOps providers. Yeah, well, I, I think um, speed is definitely one. I mean, I, I used the example before of, of taking a long time to do something like a reorg. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the pieces of advice that Sid and, and the other executive that gave me that uh, advice at the time was, you know, hey, it's good that you're being careful with the communication plan, but also just remind your people to be up for change. Um, remind them that, like, you know, they joined a very fast-moving, successful startup. And as much as people don't want to change their manager or whatever negative outcomes might be in a, in a reorg, if it's if it's done deliberately, if it's for the right reasons, it's actually a sign that you're one of, at one of the most successful companies of the world. And so I, I did that, and, um, and that was quite effective. People surprised me how, you know, uh, as long as they're included, as long as they feel like um, we're being open and honest, then they're like, yep, I trust you, and, and let's move forward uh, together. So speed is definitely one outcome. Uh, and I think in particular, GitLab being a, a remote-only company for a long time, but now like everybody is remote kind of suddenly and under duress. Um, when, you're, when you're home and you're not in, at the water cooler at their lunch table, you have less of those little moments to create understanding and empathy and laugh and get over that tense meeting or whatever might have happened an hour or two earlier. And, uh, and I think that creates a higher potential that maybe some paranoia or resentment gets in and maybe festers a little bit. And so I think our transparency helps maintain a kind of normal, collegial, fun atmosphere um, because we're, we're not subject to that paranoia of like, oh, those people are off in their own Zoom making their own decisions and, and we're just going to be told if that after the fact. And so I think it's a good sort of check and balance to, to be in a remote-only environment, which can be stressful. The emphasis on transparency, it's... It isn't just part of the culture at GitLab and, and the leadership team there. It's also kind of baked into the product, right? It's an open source, at least open core product. How do you compete with other closed source DevOps platforms like a GitHub or Azure DevOps in this open source model? And how does that blend of your cultural transparency and the, the transparent model of even how you operate as a company? How does that work to your advantage? Well, I have, a, I have an appreciation for our competitors. I've been a customer and user of them many, many times. So I have nothing bad to say about them, but it is a strong differentiator for us. Um, developers generally love open source. They love to work on open source. They love to implement it at work if they can. They love to you know, have their companies contribute back to open source or, or make their own doma- donations to open source, uh, time, money, or otherwise. Um, and then you go to work all day and you spend all your time in this interface that's closed source and you see a bug and you can't fix it. And that's just frustrating. So I think it's very consistent with the, the developer ethos to spend the majority of your time um, in a DevOps uh, tool or platform that um, is open source. You can read the code. If you see something broken, you can fix it. If you see a, a feature um, that you'd like, you can create it. And um, it's uh, it's something that, you know, we, uh, you know, obviously we remind people of it, but we don't have to work very hard to communicate the values of it. I think developers get it. And, and many times it's developers that um, sell the developer platform of choice into that, that organization. Sometimes they even start using it without executive, you know, 
knowledge or approval. They just start implementing it. And then at a certain point after it becomes entrenched, they're like, oh, well, we got to start paying for this, you know? Um, so there's a strong bottoms up sales movement that happens as a, as a result of that. Some people tend to tend to think of that as the, uh, uh, I think it's called like the Ikea effect. Um, you know, it may not be the best furniture you can find, but you built it and so you love it, right? And so uh, there's a little bit of that uh, open source angle as well, where if you can contribute to something, it's not like, oh, those that vendor, I, I hate that software. It's like, well, you know, you, you, you can write the code too, or you did write the code. And so we're all in it, all in it together. Are there other attributes of the culture at GitLab that you believe also are good examples that show up in the product or the market approach? Uh, yeah, I think... Iteration is another one. So we've got six core values. The acronym is CREDIT. It's collaboration, results, efficiency, diversity, iteration, and transparency. And it's really those latter two, iteration and transparency, that I would say make us a special or unique company. And I, I talked about how transparent we are and the challenges related to that. Iteration is the other core value that challenges everybody, not just executives. But, um, you know, I, likewise, I, I came into the company being told this. And I said, oh, you know, I've, I've read the Paul Graham essays. I know the iteration. Iteration is the best way to get product market fit. You know, have a vision of what you're going to build, but be adaptive to how you get there. Ship things, get feedback. Like, yeah, I know that. I know that. But we we uh, we iterate on everything, not just how we how we develop the product and how we get product market fit. Our marketing is iterative. Our legal policies are, are iterative, uh, and that creates a lot of challenges. Like, what is a you know, marketing sometimes can be about creating a big splash in the market. So if you do it iterative, you're almost stealing your own thunder. So what does that mean? Um, but it's sort of a sort of a meta strategy where you know we. We, uh, we don't make big mistakes because we don't do big things. Uh, you make We make small mistakes all the time, but you can easily recover from small mistakes. And so it makes us very flexible at how we, we get there. But uh, learning how to iterate, being comfortable shipping things that are so small, you almost question how much value they have or if they have any value. You know, like most, most companies or organizations, I think, struggle with um, the minimal part of minimum viable change or minimum viable product, like making things small enough. We struggle with a viable part. Um, we're so used to shipping small things that occasionally, yeah, we were up against that boundary. And sometimes we ship something and think like, oh, well, that didn't actually move us forward. But uh, it's, uh, it's, I think, a better side of the equation to, to, uh, to be failing on because for the most part, we get it right. We make a lot of small changes. We co uh, coach our um, users, our customers to be up for consuming a lot of change. The interface changes. A lot of new features are added. Our release posts are pages and pages long, um, but they get it. They see the the overall velocity of uh, the GitLab open source project and the, the product that we sell as a company. And uh, they see how, you know, maybe the, the first version isn't right, but the, the third version is exactly what they wanted. And it's a, it's a shorter path to get to that sort of feature fit or that product market fit if you're iterative with, uh, with how you get there. So that's very, very deeply ingrained in our culture. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's one of our superpowers. Before GitLab, uh, you worked at Airware, a startup that sold drones and support services uh, for companies. And uh, you had to build a bunch of teams from scratch, including like a cloud team and a machine learning team. And uh, this is kind of right after the AI winter, I guess, or before kind of early in the in the current boom that we have. Um, talk a little bit about the technical challenges you were working with there and you know, how you built a team at that time to go after this. 
Yeah, um, and I, I can't take credit for building the the whole team. We I, I joined that company. I was there for three years. They had a very strong team to start. But um, yeah, this was this was in many ways sort of the opposite GitLab. I mean, this was very much a an on premise company. It was a much smaller company. Uh, everybody was in downtown San Francisco. In fact, everybody had relocated up from uh, from Southern California when they got VC funding, and so we were you know competing for uh, fairly exotic talent sets in that geography. And so they there needed to be there. And luckily, it's a very rich talent market geographically, where we had to convince people to move from wherever, wherever they live so they could come into the office all day long. Um, and uh, the interesting thing is that my, I think my my max headcount there as the engineering leader was about 50. And then when I came to GitLab, I think we were about 80, uh, 80 to 100 around that range. And the question for my candidacy was like, well, can he manage you know, at this uh, scale? Is, is he going to be credible? And I think the, the story that I, that I told that was well-received and I think turned out to be absolutely true is that the organizational complexity I managed at Airware was higher than what GitLab did. And I think we're honestly at 550 or so people were just starting to approach the organizational complexity that, that we had at Airware because that platform was, it was one platform, but it was so many different technologies like machine learning, vehicles, embedded flight controls. Um, it, was, it was amazingly complex and, and fun to work on. You speak about the emphasis that GitLab puts on velocity and speeding up as you grow. There's a section of the handbook at GitLab that reads, the rate at which we launch new features is a competitive advantage for us. People buy GitLab not just because of what we are today, but because of what our roadmap shows we're going to be. It's great to have that all transparent, by the way. Talk about how to build that agility into how the company works. Sure. Yeah, I think, uh, and thanks for reading the handbook. I mean, the biggest challenge with the handbook now is it's probably about 5,000 pages. So there's lots of good stuff in there, but like, can you find that one kernel of, of wisdom, right? Um, so yeah, I think the the competitive, th- this again comes from Sid, our, our CEO. Um, I think the initial insight about velocity being um, a competitive disadvantage, uh, uh, advantage rather, came from a couple different things. One, uh, I think the story goes when they joined Y Combinator, they saw other groups of founders really outpacing what they could do and they would join those those weekly dinners and they just didn't have enough build. And so they kind of learned to, to iterate and to kind of turn it on and start to ship more because they had that sort of competitive um, uh, competitive environment going on. And then also as an open source project, one of the things that's unique about being an open core company is like you're you're always not not terrified, but you're always cognizant of like, hey, someone could fork us. And that could be a real problem. <laughs> you know, it's a problem for an open source project. It's even more so a potential problem for an open core company that's building revenue around that. And so the strategy at GitLab was like, hey, you're welcome to fork us. We're really good open source stewards. You're welcome to do that. However, good luck keeping up with us. Like, you know, good luck. You can fork us. You can create some feature you want, but you're never going to get that integrated back into the main because we're just marching so far ahead. And that makes us somewhat fork um, resistance. And so it's a, it's a very, I think, um, fun and clever way to sort of make ourselves like not immune, but inoculated against that failure mode. Um, because we're, we're not attacking it. We're not discouraging it. We're saying you're welcome. You're welcome to do that, but just realize it's going to be very hard because we move very fast. And then I think because of those initial experiences, it turned into, um, well, you know, just look at uh, our release post. Look at the new features that are uh, that are coming in, and uh, that's something the developers were excited about. And then something eventually that paying enterprise customers became really cognizant and excited about. 
the other part of scaling, and by the way, I love that fork comment. That's a really good one. <laughs> um, but the other part of scaling is the people. And, and, you know, you just talked about how you're over 500 people now. I know early on you were very directly involved in all hiring, but at some point you have to kind of scale. Just kind of walk us through that transition for a company as transparent as you are. Um, as you bring in new managers, what are their blind spots? What issues have you seen as you really trying to build some organizational structure? Yeah, I think certainly on onboarding is a, uh, a a challenge at any all remote company. Um, we try to do it as as best we can. We we eat our own dog food. We use our own product for everything, including running the company. So your onboarding issue is a GitLab issue in the account. Um, it's something unique about like onboarding uh, at an all remote company is you kind of you know you you've probably had other jobs before, so you know there's a lot to do. You know there's a lot to learn, but because you're not sitting in an office environment next to your onboarding buddy. Um, you don't necessarily know what to do next. So you sign, you're in this paradox of like, I know I should be busy, but I don't actually know what to do next. That onboarding issue um, kind of solves that because it's it's a big list and it just it keeps you busy. And sure, there's more important stuff to be learning, but you never feel idle and that makes the anxiety kind of go way down. So that's something we've advised other all remote companies and now all companies to, to do, which has been quite helpful. I think one of the the important insights that I had was is that um, I knew I didn't just need to hire a, a management layer, but I needed to hire a management layer that was then going to hire other people uh, because I, I knew looking ahead that we were in for a period of, of hyper growth. And so um, you need to have the insight that the uh, the biggest way you can improve or wreck your culture is by who you're hiring. Uh, and I knew I needed to hire um, not just, you know, great, humble, uh, experienced managers, but managers who have been through high growth periods before because we didn't we couldn't afford to teach that as we went. I mean, the, the common analogy of changing the tire on the on the race car couldn't be more apt to the situation. So we made sure to select for managers that had um, done a significant amount of hiring and and had not necessarily our approach to it, because you have to you have to be um, open to culture ad, not culture fit. I mean, when you're adding so many people, you can't be so restrictive about it. Well, everybody's got to think the same way uh, about about everything. Um, so they need an approach to hiring. Like yeah, they need to be experienced and, and to have demonstrated success with hiring. But we're open to having them, their own approaches to it, and we learned a lot from them um, as we as we went. So that kind of helped us grow the organization. Is just building the organization to uh, to grow. And I'm I think that's probably one of the single smartest decisions I made early on was to hire hire great hiring managers. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense and and totally resonates. Right, that's how you can get scales. You indoctrinate sort of the next level, and then you know, they kind of bring things forward. And part of what you're talking about here is managing change, right? So what happens over and over again at startups is, you know, many successive series of changes. You're a veteran of five startups, so you're a veteran of change management. How do you think about leading any kind of, you know, significant change? How, whether it's how we hire, how we roadmap, whatever it is. If I want to get a team aligned and excited about an important pivot or important, you know, major change in how the company is going to work, how do you lead through that? Yeah, I think it's um, it's really important to me that you look for the intrinsic motivators. Uh, like, I'm a big fan of uh, Dan Pink's uh, book Drive. Or if you don't want to read the whole book, there's a YouTube video by RS Animate that explains kind of the core principles in about 15 or, or 12 minutes or something like that. But basically, it says you know what what motivates knowledge work. And this what I like about this is it's not the normal business school stuff. It actually comes from empirical research. Um, and so um, he says what motivates knowledge workers is um, opportunities to master a topic that's that's intrinsically motivating to feel like I'm mastering something um, or having autonomy. So not just doing something, but having um, a say in what it is we're doing uh, and purpose. So being able to um, attach 
meaning for some grander purpose, like the arc of the trajectory of the success of the company to that task I want to do, like bumping a version that I just don't like doing. Um, and so the first thing I do is kind of look for um, opportunities to kind of align what motivates the individuals with what we're doing. Um, and I think when you can make those connections, it just sort of like takes. And if you can get that to kind of like the 80% level and the 80-20 rule, you're, you're doing pretty good. And then the question is like, well, how do you get the remaining kind of 20%? That's when you need to look for more kind of extrinsic motivators. And, and maybe because it's a startup environment, that's the stock price. Or, or something like that, like having having a, a, a liquidity event, or um, maybe there's people that, that aren't as motivated by by that, but they're motivated to learn a new language that you have the opportunity to use, or something like that. You can give them that opportunity to to learn and to uh, to grow, or whatever whatever it might be. You know, a radical thing about GitLab is that it was part of a pretty small number of companies that were all remote before the pandemic hit. You know, one of the largest all remote companies in the world, actually. Uh, so as all these other companies are are now discovering some of the the good and the bad and the challenges, I'm sure I know you get a lot of questions about what are the best practices and, and how to do it. Uh, maybe you can just share what are some of the most frequent questions you're getting now about your processes and culture and how to do it when you're not just starting remote, but actually moving to be even more so. Yeah, um, and we do. We try to be as altruistic as possible. We do uh, AMAs with the companies that reach out to us. One of our executives, myself, or, or Sid, or someone else, will try to help them out just to make them successful. And uh, a lot of people ask questions about the handbook because developers generally love documentation. It is hard to get a documentation culture started at a company, and that's for your code or your processes, or whatever. And they see our handbook, and it's like, well, the whole company is is documented. How do you do that? And um, everybody has the same instinct, which is, you know. Well, I want to change the process. So I organize my thoughts in a deck and I use the corporate template. I do some pre-selling and one-on-ones. And then when I'm ready, I book the big board meeting, you know, the big conference room, and I invite all the head honchos and I give a presentation and it's this big dog and pony show and hopefully you get approval. But then if you have a documentation source, which you probably don't, you forget to update it because you just spent like a month all this communication and, and pre-selling and selling and whatnot, it's exhausting to update the documentation after the fact. So what we do is we flip that around and we say, we call it handbook first. So the idea is, hey, we're mostly engineers. I mean, you know, our product managers are former engineers, half of people on marketing, write code and whatnot. Everybody's comfortable reading diffs. So we say the handbook is, yes, it's documentation, but I also think of it as like a database that holds the current state of the company, right? And what do managers do but change the state of their company? And so you try to work in the handbook first. First. So you, you don't do the presentation deck, you try to skip all those meetings and whatnot. And if you want to change a process, you uh, make a merge request to the handbook. And then the diff theoretically represents what's been changed, added, and removed to the current state of the company represented in the handbook. And you can read the diff. You socialize it via the diff. And the nice thing about that is, you know, the merge request or the diff, the comments, they're all asynchronous. So if you're collaborating with someone, for me, you know, who's in India or Australia or something like that, I can hand it off to them. They can read it while I'm asleep. I wake up the next morning. I've got comments and whatnot from them. And then the idea is when you hit merge, that means you've gotten approval from whoever is the, the directly responsible individual, a person that needs to uh, approve the change. And then, you know, the moment the thing is deployed, the documentation is up to date. So you never have to update the documentation because you're working in it first. And it's okay to create a proposal that doesn't get merged and then it doesn't go into the documentation. But you've done it the same, the same sorts of way. And it's a, a very counterintuitive way to work. But once you do it and you see how quickly 
you can change the, you know, a, a large organization, I think we're 1500 people or so, and how quickly you can do that, it becomes sort of addictive. And I, I continually have this experience being now a veteran of new people starting and you tell them this, and like, ah, yeah, you know, and then they go create their presentation deck and you remind them. And then they have this experience where it clicks, like they actually got something shipped, but they didn't update the handbook and nobody knows about it or something like that. Or someone pushed back on the way they were working because it wasn't handbook first. And you watch it click and then like you never see another slide deck from, <laughs> from someone. And so it's uh, it's one of the most unique and, and interesting experiences about Caleb. And I wonder for me, eventually, if I if I move on and I'm at another company or whatever, could I actually get other people to, to work that way? Because it feels so uniquely GitLab, but it's a really addictive and, and fun way to work once you've got a critical mass of people working in that way. So um, we try to explain that, but we also are aware because um, we're helping out other organizations when we explain that. Not everybody is doing it that way exactly. And so there are many virtues of working the way I described that don't require kind of the full GitLab style. It's f- interesting. I mean, treating changing the company as an engineering diff is kind of a very peaceful, orderly, calm way of approaching change. It's it's kind of an interesting thought. And it reminds me of something else that you wrote about yourself. You wrote, emotionally, I never get too high nor too low. A strength is I never have hair on fire moments. Talk about this. Can you give us an example or two of where you realized you actually had that kind of quiet strength? Yeah, I think um, growing up, I was one of those sensitive kids. I mean, I I was, you know, in the smart and gifted programs, but I'd stay up all night with insomnia, worrying about the environment and the planet and stuff like that. And I wasn't like I'd burn myself out uh, and I was not always emotionally stable or whatever. And at a certain point it clicked, I don't know, like middle school, high school or something like that, where like I I wanted to be that calm, cool and collected person. And so um, when I say that about myself, it's because like it's not an accident that I just noticed, oh, I have this attribute and people like it or something like that. It's because I didn't have it and I had the instinct to create it. And then I went through this, this long period of sort of like figuring out how to, to do this. And I think um, going back to my philosophy education, a lot of why I was attracted to that, even though it wasn't going to lead to any sort of career of use directly, it was because it helped me um, learn how to assemble problems and how to look at things from different angles and how to sort of project into the future and anticipate things. And that, you know, brought my emotions sort of into check. And now I kind of feel like um, well, I've been around the block a few times and I've kind of seen it all and, and uh, done it all within reason. And um, I really, if I ever got caught, caught, uh, caught off guard. And so that's kind of where my sort of calmness um, comes from. Um, and it's, uh, it, it's an asset. I mean, startups are tough. Um, lots of unexpected things happen. You just have to have faith that like, you know, all problems are solvable. Um, and you surround yourself with good people and you select for some people that are like you. And then sometimes I deliberately select for people that, you know, have that, um, stronger apparent emotional component or that inspirational speaking component. And those people supplement my weaknesses. And so I, I really believe that as, as much as this is a strength for me and it's benefit to my companies and my career, um, it does have downsides. And like, sometimes I'm, I'm criticized for, well, does Eric care? Is he passionate enough? Right. And so I know I need to surround myself with, with other types of leaders, with other types of skills so that we have a very blended team. And then collectively we can respond to, you know, whatever, uh, whatever circumstances might throw at us. And I'd like to follow on that because you have some other areas that you talk about. These are all fascinating. One is the the servant leader model of management. And maybe I'll just read a quotation from you on this. Um, management is a specialty like front-end, back-end, security, or DevOps. And that means aptitude comes with an imperative to make others around you better. There's no prestige in reporting lines. Your manager should be whoever makes you most effective, regardless of level. Which makes just a, a ton of sense when you say it out loud, but it's not what everyone does and it's not how people think about it. 
Where did you pick up this philosophy? And, and was there kind of a key moment in your career where you've really seen this put into effect? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there was a necessarily a key moment, but I had a series of experiences that kind of kind of led me to that that conclusion. I mean, I, I think ultimately what it takes is uh, you need to be low ego. You need to select for if you're hiring low ego people. That's why humility is one of our must-have criteria for every every role in engineering, regardless of what the the specialty is. And and you know, a great example of that is uh, Stan. So Stan was one of the top open source contributors to GitLab. He was actually my predecessor at GitLab, and he's still here. I and mean, he's in an engineering fellow role. Uh, he's been on a long journey with the company. He's one of our, our most productive and, and most brilliant people. And um, he's always been one of those people as a VP level individual contributor. Um, he'll report anywhere um, he needs to. He's, he has no concern about reporting into a, a manager that might have 10 or 15 years less uh, tenure in uh, in their career. Uh, and we've, we've been able to kind of, you know, uh, wherever our hardest problems are, we've been able to point stand, stand at those problems and, uh, that doesn't, you know, the idea of he needs to be at a certain level or he needs to report into a certain title, that would just hold him back from solving problems. And so he, uh, even more than myself, uh, I think he typifies that that attribute. It's a, it's a strength. So we've tried to um, recruit for that. We've also tried to teach that. Not everybody has had those experiences or understands that philosophy, and but people are open to it and they're, and they're very teachable uh, about it. And, um, uh, and I think it's a, a strong, effective, pragmatic organization. So Eric, we have one last question that we like to ask all of our guests on the podcast, which is, we call the show Equivalent to Magic to celebrate the magic of technology. Is there a specific moment when you can remember experiencing the magic of technology? A lot of it goes back to my my previous company, my fourth startup, uh, the the commercial drone company. Um, there's a problem with with, with drones uh, that doesn't seem like it should be a problem, uh, where it's just like locating the drone. Like, where are you in three-dimensional space? And the way you do that with uh, with robotics, especially drones, is you integrate as many different data sources as you can. And you take all the data from this and use a common filter or some structure to to get the right estimation of error and get the right answer about where am I and, and what do I need to do next as a drone. And these control loops run insanely fast, like 500 hertz, um, 500 times a, a second. And so... It's a really, really hard problem. I mean, these are engineers that study nothing but uh, GNC or, or guidance, navigation, and control, specialized sets of algorithms, tools, and whatnot. And uh, it's really hard to do. And, and when you see it go wrong, which happens quite often, you know, you're you're flying maybe your your uh, your little. Uh, prosumer, consumer drone, like your DJI drone or something like that, and everything's going fine, and you hold position, and you're flying, and the next thing you know, the drone just takes off, like, like, a, like a dog at the park just runs over the hill, and it's, it's gone suddenly. And this happens a surprising amount. Like I think the mean life of the consumer drones is something like 35 or 40 hours, or something like that, and they're gone. And this is why drone companies have drone replacement programs, where you buy one, and you can get the second one for, for half price, because this is such a, such a common problem. Um, and so once you gain an appreciation for how hard this is to do technically, in the physical world, in an environment with sunlight and wind and all this other stuff, that's when it's like it, the answer feels like magic. And so um, one of our uh, PhD researchers um, and our, our CTO um, worked together on a project um, using uh, what's called visual odometry. So basically what they did was you have a camera uh, affixed to the drone. It points downward and it just takes pictures and you analyze each video frame and you find features like a blade of grass or a pebble or something like that using a, a neural net. And you track those features from frame to frame. You use them to figure out where you are. And next thing you know, you have a system that using you know two different satellite systems and accelerometers and fiduciary markers and all this stuff just could, didn't know where it was. 
And all of a sudden you get sub-centimeter precision holding location and moving around and whatnot. And this particular project was done with just an Android phone, literally duct taped to the bottom of a, of a drone. And so you have these multi, you know, $100 million systems involved and, and whatnot, and they don't work. And you just tape a phone to the bottom of a drone and it worked like magic. And obviously that doesn't tell you where the drone is on earth, but it tells you exactly where it needs to be and it can actually hold position even when the GPS signal is bouncing off skyscrapers in a city where the accelerometers get out of whack due to temperature or who knows what and need to be re, uh, recalibrated. And so struggling with that problem and then seeing such an elegant and, and relatively exotic solution with, with neural nets and whatnot and with such cheap hardware and, and software, the phone was running the neural net as well as being the camera. Um, solving that problem for us was just magical to me. And and that's not the type of software I've worked on in my career. So it certainly wasn't something I was technically capable of at the time and uh, it made it that much more uh, more magical. It's amazing. It's a great story. That's a cool one. So many solutions uh, come down to duct tape. And uh, thanks again for coming on the show, Eric. That was fantastic. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Equivalent to Magic is a podcast from General Catalyst, a venture capital firm investing in powerful, positive change. To learn more about our investment approach and portfolio, go to generalcatalyst.com. The show is produced in partnership with Postscript Audio. Stephen Lacey is our executive producer. Daniel Waldorf produced the show. Jamie Kaiser helped edit the show. And Sean Marquand composed the theme song and mixed the show. Rhonda Scott manages marketing and communications. Please give us a rating wherever you get your shows and spread the word on social media. Stay with us as we go deep on the technical stories behind the world's most influential companies. I'm Quentin Clark. And I'm Steve Harrod. This is Equivalent to Magic.